Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics related to the human condition. In today's episode, I'm speaking with George Karunes, who is a global explorer, adventurer, and storm chaser. George is no stranger to fear or uncertainty. In fact, George travels around the world documenting some of Mother Nature's most elusive and dangerous phenomena, such as tornadoes, giant hail, dust storms, hurricanes, avalanches, volcanoes, and lightning amongst other things. He has explored all seven continents and 75 countries. George shares his experiences through photography, YouTube, speaking engagements, and he was also the host of the Angry Planet TV series. In this episode of Stories of Transformation, George and I talk about the most magnificent places he's explored, as well as how he interprets what it means to be human through the lens of experience with nature. He also shares his most life-threatening expedition. Lastly, we discuss the lessons learned from COVID-19 and how they can be applied to better dealing with climate change. As always, if you enjoyed this conversation, please share it far and wide and kindly leave a review. So without further ado, it's my pleasure to bring you this fascinating conversation with George Karunes. George Karunes, welcome to the podcast. How are you today, sir? I'm well, thank you so much. Well, it's good to have you, and uh, you've been on my radar for a long time, so it's a pleasure to have you, to be able to have this conversation with you. And the reason why I want to speak with you, George, is because a lot of the work that you do is related to catastrophes and disasters and storms. And so it's really in the space of being in a place of uncertainty. And so in the context of what's happening in the world right now in terms of COVID-19, there's a lot of uncertainty going on. And so I kind of wanted to fold your perspective into what that means and kind of how you think about it and what that means for you and your work. I think the best way to kind of start this conversation is asking the simple question is, in your own words, how do you describe what you do? (laughs) That's actually really easy because quite a few years ago, I decided, I made a really important decision, and that was to decide what my purpose in life was going to be, which is a really cool thing. We all get to decide that. Not everyone realizes that you get to decide that, but you do. And once you fully understand that, then it's extremely powerful. And so for me, I actually have a mission statement that describes my life, and I try to align all of my decisions along that mission statement. And that is to travel the world, document the most extreme forces of nature, and share what I've seen with the world so that other people can be inspired to be interested in nature and to learn more. So for those of you who don't know me out there, I, uh, I chase tornadoes and hurricanes. I climb down inside erupting volcanoes, climbing on icebergs, exploring some of the most extreme caves in the world. Basically anything where Mother Nature is, is trying to do you in, I'm there. And so I... I share my experiences through the web, through television programs. I do a lot of television, through meeting people in person, doing speaking engagements, things like that. And I love visiting with classrooms, talking to kids in particular, because I wish I had someone who was doing the stuff that I was interested in when I was a kid to come in and tell me their experiences. Like my hero growing up was Jacques Cousteau, ocean explorer. And I remember watching his program every Sunday evening. I would 
I had all his books. He was a huge hero to me. And so I'm just trying to take something that I love and get other people interested in science and nature and discovery and have a good time doing it. I mean, that's the bottom line, right? Have a good time all the time. Right. And I think this is a great way to kind of, this is a great segue to kind of talk about what the catalyst was for you then to kind of step Mm -hmm. into this space. I mean, you talk about this idea of purpose and agency and deciding that you wanted to get into this type of work. So can you kind of talk about what the catalyst was for this? And, and then we'll kind of go down this path of, you know, the first storm that you kind of encountered and the most magnificent place in the world that you've seen and those sorts of things, if we could. Yeah, I, I wish there was one eureka moment that I could tell you about, but there never was. And that's so often the case. Basically, I was always interested in science, always interested in nature when I was a kid. And then as I got older, my interests shifted to other things, music and sound recording. And I worked as an engineer for many years, but I always had that little itch in the back of my mind, that splinter in my brain that kept calling my name, the siren song of mother nature calling my name. And so in my late twenties, I started to really go back and re-examine some of the stuff that I loved when I was a kid, which was science and nature. Back then it was things like sharks and dinosaurs, of course, as many kids do especially young boys. But now it, was, it had more of a focus on weather and extremes of weather in particular. But now I had the benefit of all these years of experience with camera equipment and I've got a car and I've got all these resources now that allowed me to actually not just watch television shows and read books, but to actually go out and do. And so I had my first storm chase in 1998, my first proper tornado chase. And from there, it was just, the hook was sunk deep. (laughs) And uh, it's been nonstop ever since. But again, no big eureka moment. It It was this slow progression. I would take my vacation time and I would go chase storms when I had some, some time off. And I would negotiate with my employers to give me extra time off, unpaid. Because you can always make more money, you can never make more time. So time is our most important resource. So I would monopolize that and and take advantage of the time that I was given to go and intercept a hurricane or go chase more tornadoes or planning other big expeditions. And it just got, just kept snowballing a little more and a little more and a little more until I ended up quitting my job and becoming a full-time professional storm chasing adventurer explorer. Mm. I don't know. I don't even know what to call myself. Yeah. What's really curious about the work that you do and, and kind of how you talk about the work that you do is you in many ways are running to the thing that people are running away from. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> very much. Literally. Like, not just metaphorically, but literally, when, I, when I'm heading towards a hurricane, there's sometimes two million people that are headed the other direction. And there might be myself and a few colleagues that are headed right into it. And that is a, that is a bizarre feeling when you reach that point where you know that the storm is going to hit. And even if I turn around right now, I'm still going to be impacted by this thing. So you hit that point of no return when everyone else is evacuated and you know you can't get out of there until the thing is over. Now, I would really like to talk about what that thought process is like and kind of as this is happening, as you're running toward a tornado or a hurricane or any natural catastrophe that's happening in the moment, a volcano erupting, a tsunami that's about to hit, 
what essentially arises in you as you're running toward that thing that's uncontrollable? Well, you were talking about uncertainty, right? And we all have different tolerance for levels of uncertainty. I just happen to have a much higher tolerance, I think, than, than most people for, for being able to um, accept the uncertainty of the, of the outcome of whatever the situation is. Having said that, safety is always number one. So I'm always keeping in the back of my mind, I want to keep doing this. So how do I stay safe? How do I get in close? How do I get the shot? And how do I get out of there? Because there's no, there's no photograph or no piece of video that's worth dying for. And even though I've had close calls over the years, I'm always thinking about safety. I've got my, my friends and colleagues that come with me on various expeditions and they're watching out for me and I watch out for them. So I'm always looking for escape routes. I'm always thinking of what can go wrong. I'm trying to think of the unthinkable. What are the weird things that are going to screw me up? Did I bring everything? And then at the same time, I'm also trying to think, okay, where do I need to be to get the most photogenic shot as well? So it's a balance of safety, art, and sometimes science as well, because I have to try and forecast the weather and I'm looking at computer models and I'm studying the volcanoes or whatever. So there's this fine juggling act Mm. between scientific knowledge, self-preservation, and art that is constant and there's always several balls in the air at any given time. And that's fascinating. In preparation for documenting and essentially capturing and then sharing, how do you then prepare for capturing a moment in the context of a volcano erupting or a tsunami hitting the waves of a country? Like how do you prepare for that in terms of a process? Uh, well, because it, it happens so slowly over so many years, you sort of ease into it, right? If you, if you step into a tub of hot water, it's going to burn your foot, right? So you ease your toe in a little bit and a little bit more and a little bit more and you acclimatize yourself to it. And that's exactly what I've been doing. Mm. If I were to rush in and let's say Hurricane Katrina was the very first storm that I ever chased, it probably would have ended up disastrous for me. But because I had years of experience ahead of time with smaller storms working my way in, then you develop knowledge and experience that helps to keep you safe. Mm. So it's all about acclimatization. Same thing for mountain climbers. You You don't run up to the top of Mount Everest without acclimatizing. You will die. And actually, I flew in a helicopter to Mount Everest base camp without acclimatizing one time just to actually see the effects on the human body. I was filming a TV show up there. And let me tell you, it sucks. We were only allowed five minutes outside of the helicopter because if we stayed any longer, we would have passed out. And then the helicopter Mm. pilot would have had to try to drag us out of there. He had oxygen. We did not. So, yeah, acclimatization in the physical sense, if you're a mountaineer, or in the knowledge sense of any endeavor that has any risk, that acclimatization is certainly something that will pay dividends. Patience is a virtue, right? If you're a stock trader, you don't go all in on your first stock trade. No, you do paper trades for a while and you you experiment with smaller amounts until you get the feel for it, until you get good at it. Then you start to go all in. It's otherwise it's foolish. Otherwise it's foolish and it's dangerous. And so so I have to ask as a matter of being in a place like this, like you must be on the verge of doing all these calculations where you're trying to get as close as possible, you're trying to get the best artistic shot. But then how do you then try to really mitigate and manage this emotional sense of fear? 
Because ultimately, like, it's this idea of self-preservation, but you're really in this place of what I like to call your growth edge, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, right? If you're, if you're not outside of your comfort zone, then you're not really growing, right? That's it's cliche because it's true. And you're talking about fear, and I have a pretty close, intimate relationship with fear. <laughs> fear and I go way back, uh, sometimes very, very viscerally. But there's a big difference between fear and panic, hmm. a big difference, right? It's okay to be afraid. And I tell kids that specifically when I'm talking to classrooms. Fear is good. Fear is a motivator. You only grow when you're faced with these adversities, right? There is no heroism without fear, right? Hmm. Someone who runs in without fear is a fool. Someone who does the right thing despite their fear is the hero. Hmm. And not that I'm trying to be heroic. I'm just saying that it's an important emotion to have and to acknowledge. And for me, it's a flag, Mm -hmm. It's a flag that warns me that I need to take action. Maybe I'm too close. I need to reevaluate my situation. Right? Mm-hmm. Panic will get you killed. When you panic, you, you lose your ability to have that rational part of your brain, that decision-making part of your brain gets suspended to a certain degree. You can easily make bad decisions. So staying calm while still being afraid is not a bad place to be. And I kind of like that, that place. I like being on the edge and feeling that fear. Uh, those are some of my, my fondest memories of being afraid to do something and then doing it and, and doing a good job of it and, and having everything be okay, knowing that you've got safety measures in place, of course. Now, do you think your temperament is such that you feel alive in the context of being in this space of fear? Is that what it is? Certainly part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, most of us have had a tremendous experience lately where we've been spending a lot of time sitting at home. And I don't think many people would be saying that this is the most awe-inspiring, exhilarating time of their lives. Right? (laughs) Certainly an interesting point in our generation. We're chemical creatures, right? We are driven by dopamine and serotonin and adrenaline and... I don't jump out of airplanes every weekend. I don't own a fast car, right? I don't, I've never been bungee jumping. So I don't think that I'm an adrenaline junkie, but I'm a nature junkie. And yes, absolutely, I get some adrenaline rush from being up close to a tornado or being literally inside a volcano with lava flying overhead, which has happened numerous times. But, <laughs> but I digress. But it's, um, it does give me a thrill when I'm close, but at the same time, that's not why I do it. It's just a byproduct of my love of nature. And it's what helps to bring me back. Bring you back to where exactly? To these places, mm. to, to, to swimming ashore on a brand new volcanic island off the coast of Tonga that just erupted out of the sea a week before, or to off the coast of Mexico, diving with great white sharks, or to Kansas to chase a tornado across Dodge City, or to the heart of the Congo jungle to rappel down inside one of the world's most active volcanoes. Right? These experiences, each one of those that I just described is someone's bucket list item. Right, And I'm so privileged, unbelievably privileged, to have the opportunity to do so many of these things and to make a living from doing these things. And so 
I also feel a sense of obligation to, to share these experiences. It would be very selfish for me to just go and have these adventures and just take the photos and put them in a photo album and just watch them at home, right? So I feel definitely an obligation to share, and that's a big part of it. So that's the, the big motivating factors, of course, is the feeling alive while you're doing it, and then the sense of satisfaction from showcasing our beautiful planet that's so powerful and so humbling and so awe-inspiring and showing people these places that most will never get the opportunity to see. And a lot of people wouldn't want to see, of course, but they like seeing it on video. They like sitting in their couch watching some crazy guy go and climb inside a volcano or standing in the eye of a hurricane. They like that. So, and I like it too. And I'm happy to absorb that risk in order to educate, to inspire, hopefully inspiring the next generation of explorers. And my personal needs are met by doing it as well. Yeah, there is this uh, there is this level of people who do watch your show, The Angry Planet, or watch your videos. There is this level of living vicariously through you that not only exists with 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 your work, but with with other people that do things that are just so phenomenal that people can't even begin to think about doing it themselves, but they live vicariously through the stories that you yourself capture and or tell, right? And, and I do the same thing. There's lots of people who I watch and I see what they do and I'm blown away and I live vicariously through them as well. So it's a two-way street. Now, through your work, George, what has your work taught you about this planet and all its glory and all its detriment? What is it? Uh, what has it taught you? Oh, so much. Um, it, it's really taught me that we take the planet for granted, Right. If you look at all the planets in our solar system and all the planets that we have yet to discover, we're the only one that we know sustains life, that we know of so far. And it's a thin layer of atmosphere that keeps us alive. It's this magnetosphere from our magnetic uh, poles that, that protect us from cosmic rays. All of these amazing little factors have come together to make this planet habitable by organisms. And that's horses, cows murder hornets, and you and me, right? And we take it so for granted. And I hate going to places and seeing pollution and just landscapes ravaged by industry. I understand that we need to sustain, we need to use these resources because we have a population of over 7 billion people here on planet Earth. I get it. But at the same time, we can do better. We can absolutely do better. And that's why I love going to places like Antarctica that are so beautifully pristine or Greenland or the Brazilian jungle, right? Going, getting away. You don't hear a single car. You don't, you don't see an airplane. There's no other human around. Mm. And those places are really special. And few, very few people get to experience a place like that where you can look around and see no sign of human presence. It's true. And, 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 you know, I've been in places like that too, where you finally look up and you look around and you realize that this planet is just so magnificent, like being in the Grand Canyon and hearing nothing but your footsteps or being in the base of the Grand Tetons in the middle of the night and seeing all the stars or being 
in the Hindu Kush mountain ranges of Afghanistan and looking up and just realizing that we're just so small in this universe. It's this thing that if you really pay attention, it can just be such a humbling experience, right? Absolutely. And there's a, this, this phenomenon that astronauts experience when they're orbiting above Earth and they get to look down and they see, they see the globe below them. They're orbiting at ridic- faster than a speeding bullet, literally orbiting the planet. And they can look down and there's no demarcations of country lines. There's no political boundaries. And they get this sense of awe. And that's a rare feeling. You just described a few situations where you experienced awe and being in nature. And that is an emotion that very few people get to experience on a regular basis. Maybe, maybe when your child was born or maybe, maybe you went to the Grand Canyon or whatever. We may even get a handful of those awe-inspiring moments in our lifetime. Uh, and I think that's what I'm really addicted to is those kind of experiences. No, I think that's amazing. So I'm curious to know in all of the places that you've gone, you've been to all seven continents, you've been to over 75 countries. What is one experience that you just thought to yourself, this is so magnificent and it's something that isn't necessarily talked about. It isn't something that people generally see. What would be one of those places? Oh, there's so many, but the the one that immediately jumps to mind is the Nica Crystal Cave in Mexico. Do yourself a favor and go and Google this place, N-A-I-C-A. And it's, it's a cavern that was discovered by silver miners about 20 years ago or so. And it's 900 feet underground in the Mexican desert. And inside, it's about the size of a basketball court and there are huge crystals that look like Superman's Fortress of Solitude. Some of them are 10 meters long and 55 tons. So these 30-foot crystals, absolutely massive. And they're everywhere, gigantic crystals, like tree trunks. Mm. But the air temperature is unbearably hot. There's a chamber of magma underneath that heats the air in this, in this cave. So it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 52 Celsius. That's about 120 degrees Fahrenheit with almost 100% humidity. So you've got the heat of the Amazon jungle and the humidity, sorry, the heat of the Sahara Desert and the humidity of the Amazon jungle combined. And so that heat and humidity is deadly. You can only survive in this cave for about 20 minutes. And we had special suits with filled with ice and special chilled air respirators. Mm. And it's stunningly beautiful. Mm. It's like something out of a science fiction film. Mm. You're stepping, you're climbing over top of these giant white crystals and you're sweating so profusely. You can't believe it. The the humidity and the heat just hits you in the face like a sledgehammer. Mm. And every cell in your body is screaming at you to leave, but your eyes (laughs) tell you to stay because this place is so magnificent. Mm. And it was accidentally discovered. We never even knew this place existed until these miners accidentally broke into it. And it took me almost two years to get permission to go there for one day. Mm. So the logistics were the red tape, the logistics, uh, it was expensive and difficult. Mm. Um, but I, I knew, I knew the moment I saw a photograph of this place. I remember I was on another caving expedition and my friend Tony Morley showed me a photo. He had a binder with a printed out photo of this place. And we were sitting in a restaurant somewhere and he plopped it on the desk and said, check this place out. And in that 
instant I knew I'm going here. I don't know when, I don't know how, but I am going. Yeah. I, I am, and, and it happened. It took years, but it happened. And it is just magnificent. It's really curious to hear you talk about this cave. I mean, gosh, but it's this idea that as you're, as you're telling the story of going, you're telling it with such conviction. What are some other places that have kind of transformed the way you kind of think about all the, all the goodness and all the magnificence this world has to offer? Here's a place where pretty much anyone can go that, that really also inspires awe. Iceland. Iceland is like going to another planet. The landscapes there are otherworldly. These geysers and waterfalls, black sand beaches, volcanoes and, and glaciers. It's just stunningly beautiful. So there's an easy example. I mean, there's so many really obscure, difficult places that I've been to that are more spectacular. But in terms of the balance between ease of going to and the raw beauty and awe-inspiring nature of a place... It's hard to beat a place like Iceland. So I have to ask, since you've been all over the globe, what else is there left in your mind to explore? What else is there to explore on this planet that you haven't yet explored? Uh, well, here's the thing. is because, because of the type of exploration that I do, mm. it'll never end. It's unending mm. because I chase storms and I go after natural disasters, things like mm. that. So there's always something new popping up. Yeah. Mountain climbers, for example, they want to go to the, let's say, for example, the top of Mount Everest. That is a point, right? If I want to go and see a tornado, mm -hmm. I need to go to where the tornado is happening at that specific point in time, right? Where the tornado is touching down, where that volcano is erupting, where the hurricane is making landfall. And so capturing that moment in time that will never, ever happen again mm -hmm allows me to have an infinite number of things that I can continue to go see and document. And I'm always surprised at seeing something I haven't seen before. Right. There's parts of the world, there's, there's a couple of volcanoes in Antarctica that I haven't been to yet that I'm dying to go to. Mm -hmm. um, I've never experienced a typhoon in the Philippines or Taiwan. I really want to do that. Mm. Above my desk, I've got this huge map of the world. And it's full of pins of all the places I've been. Mm. And I like looking at where there's no pins and planning expeditions to the spots where I haven't been yet. And that's, that's always a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. So I think this is a really great place to kind of talk about what your work may demonstrate to you as it pertains to the human spirit. What exactly does, does your work kind of share with you as it pertains to who we are as human beings and the things that we innately kind of seek? When we're, when we're children, we are natural-born explorers. All we want to do is learn about our surroundings, much to the dismay of our parents, right? Because we're getting into trouble. We're falling down the stairs. We're going places where we shouldn't. They're always trying to hold us back, right? For our own safety. But all we want to do is explore. And at some point, many of us, not all of us, but many of us lose that vigor for exploration. We become complacent we become less interested in discovery. And so I just like to try and bring a little piece of that back to the world. And hopefully through demonstrating that there is still lots of places left to explore, get other people interested in exploring some more, bringing us back to our roots, our early days, our, our early explorations as a toddler, right? 
So people sometimes ask me, who, who are you trying to impress? Well, the only person I'm trying to impress is 10-year-old me, right? The person that I was when I was 10 years old. I just want to be the person that impresses that kid. That's great. That's great. Now, as I was doing my research on you, I listened to a TED Talk where you talk about the idea of capturing art in the context of catastrophe, and you share your perspective. And so I was kind of curious to know, could you explain how you think about destruction and creativity in the context of the work that you do? How do you kind of bring those two worlds together? Yeah, it can be very difficult sometimes because I go to document what is essentially a, a natural phenomena. But quite often, these natural phenomena become natural disasters, right? A tornado is not a disaster. A tornado hitting a town is a disaster. That's the big difference. It's us. We are the determining factor as to whether a force of nature becomes a disaster or not. And my being there to document it will not affect whether or not it happens. Mm. So I don't feel guilty about being there. Mm. I will say, though, that if we come across people that need help, we drop everything and we lend assistance. That's our policy. The beauty of nature is the thing that I'm trying to capture, the power and the beauty of these moments in time. But as you mentioned, yeah, absolutely, they can be a disaster. So there is a bit of a, a moral dilemma or a moral dichotomy that I run into. I never want to see a town get hit. I never want to see death and destruction. I want to see the phenomena. And so I always feel bad when these things happen in populated areas and Again, going back to my, my mission statement, by sharing what I've seen, even if it is a hurricane ripping apart a town in Mississippi, I hope that people will see that, realize how bad bad can be, and then the next time a hurricane comes around, they'll think, this could get really bad. Maybe I should evacuate. Maybe I shouldn't stay and have a hurricane party. Maybe I should listen to the authorities. Even though I understand the hypocrisy of me ignoring my own advice and rushing headlong into these kind of things. So yeah, it's, there's this crazy irony of what I do that is not lost on me. I, the, the hypocrisy and the irony, I fully, I get it. It's something that I do struggle with. Absolutely. And it's really curious. And I love the point that you made about how a storm is a phenomena in its essence, but as it pertains to who we are in the world that we create as human beings, it's considered a disaster when it essentially impacts us negatively, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. In the work that you do and all the experiences that you've kind of lived, George, you know, what was the natural disaster or the storm that really kind of had the most negative impact on you in terms of the amount of destruction it's had on the people in which it impacted? I would have to say Hurricane Katrina. It was such a powerful hurricane. It was the costliest natural disaster in U.S. history. And it just ravaged the entire Gulf Coast. I was in Gulfport, Mississippi with some colleagues in a steel-reinforced concrete parking garage, basically a bunker. And the entire town around us was just shredded during the, the storm. And at the time, of course, we don't know the extent of the damage. We know it's bad. We know it's really bad. But we don't know the full extent. We, we had no idea what was happening in New Orleans at the time. We, do, we didn't go to New Orleans because we didn't want to get trapped, and we wanted to be on the strong side of the storm in Mississippi. And so on the way back, when we left, 
we were getting these reports of how bad things were. And of course, in the days and weeks afterwards, the world saw how, how bad it was. It was the kind of storm that I think it was once in a lifetime. And I haven't been any, in a storm like Katrina since. There must have been instances in your life where you've kind of chased a storm or a natural phenomenon or a natural disaster where you thought to yourself, okay, I'm probably not going to make it out of this one. Right? I try, to, I try to never put myself in that position. But I'm sure it's happened because it's so hard to gauge, especially in the beginning, given like the way you talked about this, the progression of getting more and more used to this idea of putting yourself in that place. Yeah, absolutely. So let me, let me share you a story <laughs> from Turkmenistan in Central Asia. It was uh, an expedition that I was leading for National Geographic. So I had a science grant from them, and I had a TV crew following me into Turkmenistan, which is a very difficult country to get permission to go in, especially with the TV crew. It's very much like North Korea. Limited, no freedom of the press, very oppressive regime. And the reason I was going there is because there's a pit of fire, 100 feet deep and 230 feet across in the middle of the desert in Turkmenistan. It's called the doorway to hell. Locally, they call it Darvaza. And my mission was to go there, go inside to the bottom, in a special heat-proof suit with self-contained air, gather soil samples, and then get those analyzed through a DNA analysis to see if there's any kind of bacteria living in this extremely hot, flame-filled, methane-gas-rich environment at the bottom of this crater. And that could give us clues as to where we might want to look for life on other planets, because there are other planets that have a similar kind of environment. So this has the long-shot potential of being extremely important in that it could give us clues as to where to look to find life on another planet, alien life, right? But it's super dangerous and, and extremely difficult to do this. No human being had ever done it before. So I had no point of reference other than all of my previous experiences rappelling down inside volcanoes, which qualified me more than anyone else on Earth, but nobody was fully qualified because it was a feat that no one had ever done. And I've got the Guinness plaque above my, <laughs> above my desk uh, commemorating that feat, actually. So, but it was so frightening because when you research a place so heavily, you think you know everything about it until you come face to face with it. And then all bets are off. They say no, no, battle, or no fight plan survives the first punch in the face or something like that. Or, or no, no battle plan survives first contact with the enemy. And that is so absolutely true. So I, we arrive in Turkmenistan. It was like a year and a half of planning. We're being spied on by the government. We finally get to this crater, and it's this, it looks like a volcano. It's this pit of fire. And I walk up to the edge to get my first ever glimpse of this thing with my own eyes. And my first thought is, I can't do this. How am I going to do this? This is impossible. This is too intimidating. It's too hot. I'm not going to be able to survive this. And I've got a team of people. I've got an international team of rope riggers, a TV crew, uh, a microbiologist, mm. all of these local guides and porters. I've got scientists from the Department of Energy in, in Turkmenistan. I've got all these people counting on me, all that pressure on me to make this happen because I told them that I could do it. Mm. 
and I didn't know if I could at that point. So I'm sure you're wondering what happened next. Basically, you fall back onto what you know and your team. And so we studied this crater. You don't jump in head first. It's that same thing we're talking about with the stock trading. You don't jump, you don't go all in. So we studied this crater for days. We suspended fire-resistant ropes across the crater and put a temperature probe out there to measure where the hottest parts were and where the cool air was and where the hot air was. And we did all kinds of experiments for, for days before I even put my suit on to try and physically go inside this crater. Mm-hmm. But when the time came, I had a climbing harness that was custom made out of Kevlar because Kevlar wouldn't melt like a regular climbing harness would. Mm-hmm. I had self-contained air, all these GoPro cameras, a special heat-resistant aluminized suit. And then at one point, you just got to put all of your trust in your equipment and your team and your planning and preparation and put all your weight on the rope and go out to the very middle and then rappel down and get the job done. And with close to two years of playing in preparation, mm-hmm. I had 17 minutes at the bottom. That's it. That's, that's all I had. That's all the air I had. 17 minutes to go down, get the job done. And let me tell you, standing at the bottom of a crater surrounded by thousands of fires, being in there and standing where no human has ever stood and seeing the glow, we did it at night too, the glow of this crater and the thousands of flames and the sound of, of the burning methane gas. It, it was basically an industrial accident. They were drilling for natural gas and the drilling rig collapsed into this sinkhole that had formed. They lit it on fire thinking it would burn off in a couple of days. And that was back in 1971. It's been burning 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So yeah, it's, it's stunning, really amazing, beautiful to, to witness. It's mesmerizing and totally hypnotic. But standing at the bottom, you feel like you're on Mars because everything is glowing orange. You have to wear a special protective suit with, with your own air supply. I had one rope attaching me to the outside world. And that was, that was my lifeline. That sounds incredible. Now, how do, you, how do you think that experience transformed you? It was the most ambitious expedition I had ever done. It was the most difficult from a logistics point of view. And it was the most rewarding because of those things because it was so difficult, because it was a world's first. I say this very frequently, that if you're the best at something, someone's going to always come along and be better than you. But if you're the first to do something, nobody can ever take that away from you. I mean, you've seen so much of the globe, George, and you've been to the most, some of the most remote places, and you've been the first person in some of these places. What has this experience in, in your lifestyle and your work kind of demonstrated to you in terms of What's going on in terms of climate change and how there can be any light between what's happening with climate change and what's happening with COVID-19? Is there any commonality? Are there any lessons that you can kind of pull from all this? Yeah, absolutely. So the thing that has really been encouraging to me is to see how the world has been coming together to deal with COVID-19. And what we need to do is to take that same, use this as a reference. Say, hey, we've done it before with this. We have the capability. We've proven to ourselves that we have the capability to work together as a global unit, as a team, working towards a single common goal to help prevent the spread of COVID-19. 
there's no reason why we can't do that again for climate change or for whatever risk comes our way. And really interestingly, just before the pandemic hit, I was in Japan and I was working on a TV program all about different manners in which the human species could possibly go extinct. And I was there specifically working on a super volcano episode of this program. But climate change was another episode. And of course, global pandemic was another mm. episode of this program, which got interrupted by a global pandemic. So I don't know what's going to happen with the TV show right now. But uh, just the, the crazy irony, I literally came back from Japan on March 11th and then immediately had to go into lockdown. Yeah, immediate, immediately. Yeah. So it just proves me that we can, we can do this. We can handle this. All we, ha all we need is the, the determination to do it, right? You just have to decide to do it. Right. And that's how we started this conversation is that everybody is able to have a sense of agency to essentially decide what they want to do with their lives, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And not just and not just our lives, but we have to think about the next generation as well. It's totally true. And so what I'd love to do, George, is as we're wrapping up here, there's one question I'd like to ask all my guests. And um, it's this. What's your message for the world? <laughs> message for the world? Well, it's, it's not that complicated, really. Get outside. Get outside. When was the last time you spent some time in nature, right? We are so distant from nature most of the time, especially these days, particularly these days, because we're all locked inside. But um, the more you connect with nature, the more you will appreciate it. The more you appreciate it, the more likely you are to protect it. Mm. The more likely you are to protect it, the odds are someone in the next generation is going to be able to enjoy it as well. So we only will care about the things that we know about. And we only know about the things that we're curious about. We're only curious about the things that we're exposed to. So get out there and enjoy nature and, and enjoy your place in nature. No, I really like that message, uh, George. And uh, I just want to say, you know, I really appreciate the work that you do. It's been an honor speaking with you and continue exploring for us because we all live vicariously through you in some form or fashion. Thank you, sir. <laughs> oh, thank you, Bakhtash. I appreciate it. Uh, it was a great conversation. Keep it up. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you for joining us on the Stories of Transformation podcast. This podcast is produced by Dana Drahos. Audio engineering by Joe Genjemi. Marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi. And theme music by Kais Esor. If you love Stories of Transformation, you can help more people find us by leaving a review and sharing the episodes far and wide. We're grateful for all your support. And on behalf of the Stories of Transformation team, I'd like to say... Thank you. Okay, see you next time.